Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chats with Kat on the Voice of Adoptees podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and I hope everyone is having a great week so far. Don't forget to grab your coffee, tea, or a preferred beverage and settle on in. I am currently here with Lisa, who works as the Executive Vice President for Nightlight at Christian Adoptions, or Executive Vice President for Nightlight Christian Adoptions. I want to make sure I get the name right. And this is based out of Oklahoma in the U.S. So, Lisa, briefly introduce yourself to those who are listening. Hello, my name is Lisa Prather. As you said, I'm Executive Vice President of Nightlight Christian Adoptions. I've actually been an employee at Nightlight Christian Adoptions for 16 years. And I Nightlight is actually, our corporate office is in California, but we are licensed in 10 states. I am in the Oklahoma office. I am not married. I do not have children. I have lots of brothers and sisters, big family, and a couple of dogs. So that's pretty much me. Okay. <laughs> I, I love that you have a big family. So what specifically inspired you to work with this particular organization? What is your connection to adoption? Well, I personally was adopted by my stepfather when I was four years old. And so I have the connection with adoption that came through my personal story. And what I remember as a child is that I grew up in a small town. And so it was uncommon for somebody to be adopted. And so I remember friends asking a lot of questions about that and I think it was just because they didn't really understand, you know, if their biological mother and father, and they were always curious about, because I always knew I was adopted and I was open about it. And they were always curious about the relationship I had with my dad and whether or not it was the same as the relationship that they had with their dad, because, you know, it was a foreign concept to them, you know, this, this man is your adopted father. And so I spent all of my childhood that I could remember educating people about adoption and what that meant and that our love was no different. And, you know, just what did it mean when I would talk about my dad and they would say, well, what about your real dad? And I would say, he's not my real dad. This is my real dad. You know, my, this is, that's my biological dad, you know, those kinds of conversations. And so that's always just been a part of my life, telling my story of, you know, meeting him when I got old, my biological father, when I got older and all that kind of stuff. So adoption just is, in the, in the web of my life. And I think I've been educating people on adoption since I can remember. So it seemed like a natural flow. I actually got into social work because I care about kids and I wanted to do something for abused children. And I went into social work thinking I would work for child welfare services or something like that. And I did that. I did do that for a few years. And then I went to work for a foster care agency for about five years. And that foster care agency asked me to take a position in another state. I moved to South Carolina and then decided I didn't like working for that organization. (laughs) So I started looking elsewhere and I thought, you know, what would I love to do? And, you know, I'd been working in child welfare and foster care for a long time. And I thought, you know, I would love to put families together. Wouldn't it be great if I could work in adoption and help put families together? And so I just started looking and I actually started my journey at Nightlight with one of the agencies that did merge into Nightlight. So I began working at Carolina Hope in 2007. 
Does that answer your question? <laughs> it does. And it, it leads me to other questions. So clearly you've, you've been here for quite a long time. You've gone through different organizations, some you really enjoyed, some others that you did not enjoy. But what led you specifically to work for Nightlight? Like, what is the history of Nightlight? Um, is it maybe it's like the core mission that you saw and you were very inspired by, given that you have a background, a very large caring heart and just a very a good background in social work? Mm -hmm. Well, um, Nightlight has been around since 1959, and they were first incorporated in 1959. It previously had a different name. I think it was called Evan Evangelical Christian Adoption Agency or something similar to that. And they uh, the name was changed in the 90s to Nightlight as a way to sort of, you know, the, the history behind that name is that when children are scared in the dark, a nightlight brings them safety and peace. And that is kind of why they chose the name Nightlight, because we were going into some really dark places at that time to try and help children who didn't have families. And so that was changed in the 90s. And Nightlight's been working in international adoption and domestic adoption for the longest. So they started out um, doing domestic adoption. And the first international adoptions I think that Nightlight did were back when they started the Russia program. And our former president, Ron Stoddard, was actually just a kind of a visionary. And he had this idea that, you know, he had gone to Russia several times and met many, many children waiting in the orphanages, but people in the U.S. were all looking for babies. And he had this idea that, you know, if these families could see the children that are older, they would want to adopt them. And so he came up with the very first orphan Russian hosting program, where at that time it was more, you know, related to like performing and cultural stuff. So they would come over, he would bring a group of kids over, which was a hard thing to accomplish because, of course, we had to get visas and had to convince both both governments and all of that kind of stuff. So the kids would come and they would perform or they would stay with U.S. families and perform their cultural dances and things like that around the around the U.S. So that's kind of how he got started in international adoption. So when I went to work for Carolina Hope, I knew nothing about international adoption. I mean, I'd only done foster care. Um, I knew a little bit about domestic adoption, but not much. So I really, when I first went to work for them, as I said, I was just thinking, I want to do something where I put families together. And so I went to work for Carolina Hope, who had not been around as long. I think they started in the 90s. Um, and the Hague came into effect in 2006. Is that right? 2008. Anyway, it, it went into effect right around the time that I went to work for Carolina Hope. And so it was majorly affecting small agencies. And Carolina Hope was a very small agency because it was very expensive to go through that process. And so our director at the time, Laura Bovet, she began looking for an agency that was similar in mission, um, beliefs and values that we could potentially merge with. And that led her to Nightlight. She had met Ron. Um, she had heard him speak before and other people were saying, hey, maybe you should call Nightlight. And so Carolina Hope was actually the very first agency that ever merged with Nightlight in 2008 or nine. kind of get my years mixed up. But we merged with them for that reason, because we knew that we aligned with what we were looking for. So there's a couple of things that I love about Nightlight that 
drew me to Nightlight. <laughs> One thing is that the mission of Nightlight is to get more kids permanency. So we want to get more kids adopted or get them reunified. If it's our foster care program, we want them to be in a permanent place. We want to stop the moves and make sure that kids are in a permanent home. And one of the other philosophies was we do not look for children for homes. We look for homes for children. So when, you know, in the early 2000s and when I was working in international adoption, it was still very common for families to just be looking for a baby. I want a baby, I want a baby, I want a baby. So we spent a lot of time educating families and saying, we're not looking for a baby for your home. We have kids who need homes and we're looking for families for those kids. And so that was really their, their philosophy from the very beginning, which I loved. And then also the fact that we were really focused on waiting kids. Like, are there kids out there that are older, special needs, you know, anything like that? We were always looking for kids that, for homes for kids that needed that. So I think those are like the main things that drew me to Nightlight. I feel like there was another one, but I've forgotten what it was because I went out of my head while I was talking. <laughs> Honestly, I'm, I'm very impressed. This organization does so much and I, I love what you said, where you're not looking for children for homes. You're looking for homes for children. You know, it's it's a very beautiful uh, visual representation where a lot of the time, like you said, uh, families do want a baby. But there's a lot of children who would love to just have a family, not not even just more than a place to to stay. The foster care system in, in the States is uh, I'm not really sure how to put it into to words. Can you can you talk a little bit more about the the role of the organization within the foster realm and what specifically you do, how you look for the homes, what what it is, what is needed to qualify to be a foster parent? Sure. Well, I want to also mention that when I first started at Nightlight, we didn't do foster care. We only did adoption. And when our new president became the president, Daniel Nervous, he has two children adopted from the foster care system. Mm -hmm. And so he was really the visionary behind, like, Nightlight needs to be involved in foster care. And it was because he said children who are needing to be adopted from the foster care system are in foster care. So even though we know that the goal of foster care is always reunification, 80% of children, foster children who are adopted are adopted by their foster parents. So there is adoption happening in foster care. Now, having come from foster care and having worked five years only doing foster care, I was not an early adopter to this plan because I had just seen a lot of brokenness in the foster care system, and I wasn't looking forward to getting back into that. And the main, my main objections were I had been with an organization that only did foster care, and so I felt that it had become very much about the word I'm looking for, the industrial complex. Like instead of doing what's best for the children, we are all about how many beds do we have and do we have those beds full so that we can pay everybody. And I did not feel like I could really make choices about what's best for the kids because I was always having this pressure of like, how many kids do you have in care and are we meeting our budget? 
So when Dan first started talking about this idea, I was like, Dan, I don't want to go there again. I don't want to be in that position. And he reassured me and he said, Lisa, we don't rely on foster care income because we already are a solvent. We already have other income. We have other programs. So we are never going to be in a place where we are focused on the number of kids we have in care. We are going to focus on what's best for kids. We can do this better. And he convinced me and we, and he promised me that we would not do that, you know? And so he and I kind of balance each other in our foster care program. If I feel like the conversation is leaning that direction, I'm really quick to be like, Hey, Hey, hey this is not what we do. You know, we, we do foster care well, and we want kids to be cared for and we want to look at their best interest. And we're not looking at the numbers of kids that are in our homes. Now, obviously we do have goals and we want, we know that nightlight has, a great foster care program. So we do want to grow it and we do want more children who are in foster care to be in a nightlight home. So there's a balance there that's really key. So we have foster care, I believe now in seven of our 10 states and all of our foster care programs, some of them have been doing it. I think our oldest, the, the state that's been doing it the longest is Colorado. So we have any, from any given time, 20 to 25 kids in care in those in Colorado and South Carolina, um, Georgia, those are kind of the states that we have the strongest programs. And then, and we've just started those, we've just gotten licensed in some of our states. So we're just now gearing up and don't have any kids in care. And then we have a couple of states where we have four or five kids in care. So what's wonderful about that is we can really focus on the things that I mentioned, just really helping those kids either get back with their families or be adopted. And we don't have to worry about finances. Right. So I don't even know if I answered your question. I feel like I went No, you, you definitely did. <laughs> Again, I just, I feel throughout our discussion, you're, you're bringing up very important points. So I, I, I'm happy to just let you talk and explain because I, I know a little bit, about the uh, naturally being adopted. I also have looked into like different foster care systems and just a little bit about it. And I I understand why you felt the way that you felt. And I, I'm right there with you, which is why I was kind of like alluding to that. And I kind of wanted to know like, what is it like kind of behind the scenes in the team? And based off of that, let's talk about you. Like what is your roles and your responsibilities as the executive vice president of the organization, what specifically is it that you oversee and, and what is your goals as well? Okay. Well, as executive vice president, I am over all of the vice presidents and we have four of them, I believe. <laughs> um, we have a vice president of domestic adoption, a vice president of international adoption, a vice president of social services, mm -hmm. and a vice president of foster care services. So I supervise those vice presidents, and then, of course, they supervise their programs. I'm responsible for a lot of policy, how we uh, develop policy, writing policies. Um, we are Hague-accredited and COA-accredited, so I'm very involved in those aspects when we're going through reaccreditation and then throughout the year in between making sure we're in compliance and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. I also do a lot of human uh, resources I deal with human resources when we have problem issues come up. I help those vice presidents or executive directors just talk through it and, you know, evaluate and try to figure out how to solve the problem. 
And I also am very involved, like I said, in the day to day, like I'm on every, I'm in every meeting that we have with our different teams, even though I may not be directly supervising, I'm still attending those meetings and I'm following up with my VPs when I have concerns or questions or things that I feel like we're maybe moving in the wrong direction. Or, you know, one of the things that we try to do is we want to do what's in the best interest of kids, but we also don't want to regulate, over-regulate. So it's finding that balance, you know, if somebody's leaning too much toward, you know, this family really needs to do A, B, and C, coming back and saying, okay, but why do they need to do A, B, and C? And is there another solution? And, you know, just helping them think differently sometimes about how they can get the problem solved without being too restrictive. That I also, I'm also the person who approves um, refunds and I'm the HIPAA compliance officer and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right, right. (laughs) Sometimes my job is a lot of paperwork and compliance. <laughs> right. Yes. But what I really love about your specific position, and it's not necessarily having to do with like the roles and responsibilities. I just really enjoy how involved you are, how passionate you are, how you want to be involved, and you want to make sure that you are the organization as a whole is doing everything that it can. And it's very comforting because I personally feel in many people go into an adoption organization. They work there because they they want to, they care. But I also, there's also been times where it's not that way, right? So to know that this particular organization has the people who are passionate and want to help and care about the children and the families who are also coming in and the people who are also potentially looking, I feel that is a very important component of not just the organization, but it sets a precedent for other organizations as well. Um, and as an adopted child, it is very appreci- appreciated. <laughs> I've, I've heard some horror stories for uh, the foster care area and to, to, to know that there are people who care about the children really means a lot to me. So thank you. <laughs> Um, but for parents who are looking to adopt, why specifically should they choose your organization? I know you guys have a lot of programs. Um, what other what other services do you provide? That's a great question. Um, one of the reasons why I think we're one of the best places to go for families who are looking to adopt is because we do offer every avenue of adoption. So we have international adoption, domestic adoption, embryo adoption, which is our snowflakes program. And then we also do foster care. We do adoption from foster care. We have a program called Anchored in Hope, which is our adoption from foster care program. And then we have a, a renewed hope program, which is adoption from dissolution, which unfortunately is a a fact that does happen where um, a family may adopt a child and then decide that that child is not right for their home. And so we try to help when that's happening because we, the last thing we want is for kids to be rehomed in the sense, you know, we want to make sure that it's being evaluated and the families are, um, it's being done ethically and legally. So when a family comes to us to adopt, one of the wonderful things about Nightlight is that Sometimes when families come to adoption, they really don't know what they want. There's so much information out there and there are so many different programs available. It's very hard to, if you just go on the internet and you try to figure it out, it's overwhelming. So when families come to us, one of the things that families usually comment on right away is that we answer the phone. And that may seem like, well, of course they answer the phone, right? Doesn't everybody answer the phone? But 
there are a lot of agencies out there that have a, a voicemail system. Like when you call, you get an automated message and you press one for this and two for that and, you know, whatever. And then you get to the person that you need to speak with. We do not have that system, even though we have, you know, 12 offices in 10 states, we we have people answering the phone. And those people are trained to talk to all inquiries about what is it that you want? What do you see your family looking like? So that we can figure out, even if you call me and you say, I want to adopt domestically, that may not really be, that may be the only thing that that family even knows exists. They've never heard of snowflakes. They don't know that, you know, kids in foster care are adopted by their foster parents 80% of the time. You know, there's just a lot of things that they're unaware of. And so we can, we can talk to them about what does your family look like? What do you do? What do you imagine doing with your kids? And then we guide them to the program that we think is the best fit for them or the one where we think that they will move through the quickest. And then the other thing is if they sign up for a program because they say, you know, I, I want to adopt from Bulgaria and I'm signing up with Bulgaria. And then they wait a few years and they're like, you know what? We don't know that Bulgaria is right for us. Is there another option? We have portability. We can move a family from international to domestic or domestic to foster care or you know, whatever the program may be, and they don't have to go to a whole new agency to start over with another program. That's a lot. So, so what I'm hearing is there's a lot of different avenues. I feel like you're kind of touching the tip of the iceberg. Something that I, when you were speaking, I have actually never heard of this, but the uh, snowflakes, if we could just briefly talk about that a little bit, tell me what it is. If I haven't heard of it, I'm sure there are many, many other people who are who might be listening right now who just have never heard of it. So let's talk about the program snowflakes. Okay. Nightlight pioneered the embryo adoption program. I can't give you an exact year, but I can tell you basically there are over a million embryos in frozen storage in the United States alone. So these are embryos that have been created by families who've gone through infertility and they have gone through the IVF process and created embryos. And many times those families have had two or three children from the embryos, but they have frozen embryos still in storage and they have to figure out what to do with those embryos. And their options are typically to either have them destroyed or donate them to science or just keep paying the storage and keep them in storage and, and then, or they can ha allow another family to adopt them. And obviously, you know, Nightlight is a very pro-life organization. We believe that life begins at conception and these are children that need to be born out of the freezer. So our program is specifically focused on helping those families who've created embryos and don't know what to do with them to find families who are maybe also struggling with infertility and don't really want to go through the IVF process, but they would be willing to adopt another family's embryos. So we match these families, we work with them through the whole snowflakes process. And then, you know, the families that adopt the embryos, um, unfortunately, it's a it's under property law because legally embryos are not considered people. So this is all done through contracts, property contracts and things like that. But the children, the um, embryos are transferred to the new family. And when that family gives birth to that child, there is not technically any adoption that takes place because when that child is born, their name's gone birth certificate. They are the parents of that child. But obviously that child does 
deserve to know their genetic history and how they came to be. And so we work with both families why we do an adoption program. We do it very similar to, to domestic. We home study the families that are receiving the embryos. We work with the donor family and the receiving family to have an open relationship. Often the the donor family has, you know, a few children and then the um, adopting family has a few children that may be full biological siblings. So it's important that they know about each other. They know where they are in the country, you know, all of those kinds of things. And so that's, that's what the Snowflakes program is. And it is a lot of, even though it's been around a long time, it is still very, you know, a lot of people are like, what? I've never heard of this. I didn't know this was a thing. Our oldest snowflake, so like our first baby that was born through the Snowflakes program is graduating from college this year. So this is something that's been going on for a pretty long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we've had over a thousand, yeah, we've had over a thousand children born through the Snowflakes program. Oh, that's wonderful. Something you mentioned is uh, the importance of understanding, basically the way that I'm interpreting it, because you said it so much more eloquently, but the importance of understanding your past. So for example, international adoption, especially adoption from Russia, it's usually closed case adoption or closed door. So there is very little, if at all, no access to medical records, birth records, parents, anything. So what I really, really like about what you're saying is that you give that option. Now, is this an option that is decided upon by the parent? What if the parent says, we don't really want that? Is it something that is more mandatory? Like talk about that, because this is something that a lot of adopted children, foster children, children uh, who go through these sorts of programs would probably want to also know about if they're, if it's more of an optional, optional thing or just how that works in this type of organization and the importance of it. Sure. Well, there are requirements for the Snowflakes program, whether you are a donor family or a an adopted family. We have a minimum amount of communication as far as information that has to be given to us so that that child will have that information. And at the very minimum, the families must know where each other are and who each other are. But we work really hard with those families to understand why it is so important that they have communication. And most of the time, the families are interested in that because they know that as their child grows, they may have questions or maybe medical things that come up. And they know that they, if they have this communication with the donor family, then they're going to be able to reach out and get those questions answered. The other thing is that these families typically have a lot in common. These are usually middle-class families who've gone through infertility. They are typically you know, just like with our domestic program, the donor family chooses the family that they're placing their embryos with, which is another reason why the program is so successful, because I, I failed to mention that you can do embryo donation through a clinic um, where it's a medical procedure and the doctors are the ones who manage everything. And in those situations, those families know nothing about each other and the child does not get any information except what's on that medical form. That's it. So in our program, you know, the families choose the family that they're placing with because that family, there's something about that family that they like, right? There's some reason that they feel drawn to that family. And so typically their relationship starts right then and there and then moves forward and grows. Um, the same is true with our domestic program. With our domestic program, we do require all of our families to 
be to, they have to be willing to do an open adoption. If they want to close adoption, they nightlight is not for them. An open adoption domestically is driven by the birth parent. So if the birth parent says, I want to close adoption, I want no communication, we can't, I mean, we try to educate her and help her to know why it's so important to have that openness, but we don't force her to do anything that she's uncomfortable with. But generally speaking, most of our domestic adoptions, the birth moms are willing to have a relationship before the baby is born, to get to know the family. Again, they've chosen this family answer lots of questions um, that the family has. And then after the baby's born, they continue to have communication. But we require that all of our adoptive families are willing to have that open relationship and all adoptive families must be willing to do a visit with that birth parent at least once a year until the child is 18. Now, the birth mother may not want that. She may say, no, I don't want to visit but it, they ha- they know that that is a requirement of being in the program. And if the birth mother says she wants to visit every year, then they have they know they're supposed to make that happen. Now, the tricky thing is, of course, that legally in a lot of states, there is not a contract that is binding after the placement. So once that adoption happens and it's finalized, that child is legally that adoptive family's child. And if they were not to follow through on the agreement that they made with that birth mom, there's no court that will require them to do it. Now, there are some states where there there are some legalities and that can happen, which is which is good. But for us, we have we have to do a lot of communicating with our adoptive families about making sure that we under we believe that they are going to follow through. And we do understand that things change over time and there are certain situations where maybe an adoptive family doesn't feel like it's a the birth mother is a good influence and they're not sure that they want to, you know, have that visit. You know, missing one visit is different than, you know, just totally refusing to meet your contractual obligations. So we do a lot of, you know, and we're very involved in that. And then also mediating after the fact. And if the relationship does become challenging, we can get in there and help figure out how to solve problems and communication between the two parties. Most of the time, what adoptive families and birth families need to know and need to think about is we're not just talking about this baby. That's what's very hard for families sometimes because they're so focused on getting a baby that we have to make them rethink this, this child is going to be five, this child's going to be 10, this child's going to be 17, this child's going to be 25. So in all of those places in their life, they're going to want to know their identity. How are you going to help them develop their identity. And if you say to that birth mom, if you cut her off or you, you know, in that relationship, now you have to answer to your child. So you may think that your child doesn't know. And, you know, you may think, well, we can just keep it to ourselves. But when your child is 25 and they go and find their birth mother and their birth mother says, well, I lost contact with you because the family refused to speak to me. How do you think that's going to go over you know, and just re, you know, shaping the way they think about things. And then most of the time they're like, oh, well, I hadn't really considered that. Or now we live in the digital age. You, you know, people find each other on Facebook. There's ancestry DNA. Like you have to be prepared for anything. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so having those conversations really help. I agree. 
Now, of course, with international adoption, it, you know, it remains closed. But, but again, Facebook, Ancestry DNA, we talked to families about that. Families used to go into international adoption, I think, because they would be like, well, there, I don't have to deal with that birth parent thing. I don't have to, you know. And now we're like, well, no, that's not really how that works. Because, again, down the road, this these are going to be questions. And you want to be prepared right from the very beginning. Right. With adoption from foster care, we've even found that even with adoption from foster care where kids, the parental rights have been terminated, that does not mean that those children are not connected to those families. And a lot of times they have communication with those families. And so again, I think adoptive families come in thinking, oh, they're, these, these families did horrible things to them and now their rights are terminated. And so they won't ever need to know or be concerned about what's happened to their family. And that is absolutely untrue. So it's just re-educating everybody who comes into adoption about what does it look like for the child? Think about this in terms of, you know, how would you feel if you came into a family and you, you know, I mean, kids love their parents. I mean, it doesn't matter what they do. You know, that's just, it's just who we are. It's in us. And so you may think that this person did horrible things to this child, but if your parents had done horrible things to you, you still would love them. That's just the nature of how we're made. And so you can't be talking negatively about this person because this also will sometimes cause your child to say, well, I'm, I'm DNA of that person. So if you don't like that person, then maybe you don't like me. I mean, there's just so many layers I could go on and on, but I won't. No, no, it's it's really funny that you mentioned uh, about speaking about the, basically like the loved one of the child, right? And, And who the child is related to and how you speak about that. I can pull from my own personal experience where my adoptive mother didn't really speak highly of my biological mother. And it made me feel like, oh, like I'm, I'm really the daughter of that woman. Oh God, what does that say about me? Like I'm, and then it, it, it goes into kind of a negative spiral. So, you know, you want to not do that to the child. If anything, you want to lift up the child. But if the child is struggling, you know, for, for parents, who do adopt, do do uh, do go through with foster care or, or any any of the other beautiful programs that are offered, what programs are offered for the adoptee to help the adoptee get through any sort of feelings or uh, just their own journey? How, how can this organization help the adoptee or the foster child on their journey, their personal journey through life? Well, um, we Nightlight has uh, something called the Post-Adoption Connection Center. And it began out of this desire. I was noticing that what was happening a lot of times is that when families were struggling after adoption, they were not contacting Nightlight for help. They were, you know, going to a therapist or going somewhere else, but they weren't calling us. And then they would call us when they were ready to dissolve that adoption. And they would say, we've exhausted all of our options. And then I would think, how can that be? Because you've never called me. I am one of your options, you know? So we realized that what was happening is that families, you know, they go through such extensive sort of evaluation to be able to adopt. You know, they're, they're asked all of these personal questions, they do background checks, and it's a huge process. So once the adoption is finalized, 
if they're struggling, there is a lot of judgment, fear of judgment. And so they may not be calling their adoption agency because they're like, I had to present myself as this wonderful person, this wonderful family. And now I'm struggling and I have to go back to them and say, guess what? I'm not as great as I thought I was. Or guess what? I'm, you know, I worked so hard to get this child and now I'm struggling with this child. It's just the idea of going back to those same people. So we started working on keeping those connections with families. What can we do to keep connection to make sure that families know that uh, that we are here for them and that this is not just an adoption transaction. Adoption is a lifelong process. So some of the things that we do with families from the first from the get-go is we, we reach out to them. The Post-Adoption Connection Center contacts every family as soon as they come home to let them know, hey, we're here. But then we also do a follow-up where we try to get a phone call with them in about three months after adoption because that's when things can kind of start to creep up. Um, through the Post-Adoption Connection Center, we send an email to the family on the child's birthday every year. And on that date, we send like some Uh, basically some promotional materials that we've put together, but it's based on the age of that child. So my child is now six. So, hey, congratulations, happy birthday. Your child is six years old. Here are some things that your child may be going through developmentally. Here's how that may relate to adoption or what that might look like, what kind of questions they may be asking, like anything, you know, just to kind of educate the family on their child and then just remain in their life. So they know they're getting these contacts from us, a reminder that, hey, if you need anything, we're here. And then throughout the child's life, that continues to happen. You know, there's already post-adoption reporting that happens with all international programs, domestic programs and all of that. So we do, we do, we are already in contact with them in some ways for a little while, but those usually stop after a certain period of time. So, you know, just trying to remain in contact. So as that continues, um, we have developed since we started with communication, like keeping the contact. So since then, we've added some things to our post-adoption connection center as we saw, you know, problems arising and what the needs were for families. One of the um, things we have is we have a crisis team called the PST, Placement Stabilization Team. So if we have a family that's truly an emergency situation, any of our program coordinators that may notice that it may be while the family's traveling to receive the child, it may be years later after the child is home, but when they are in crisis, they can contact our post-adoption connection center or one of our other staff can contact the post-adoption connection center and we can put them in touch with our placement stabilization team, which is a 24-7 support. So we have two people who are then assigned to that family. These are clinically licensed staff members that we have who will then reach out to that family and start, you know, trying to just sort of triage whatever is happening and figuring out how to help them um, to get to a place of stabilization. We also have a coaching program where if a family is struggling with a behavior that instead of it being like an overall thing, but like there's just this one behavior that just really drives us crazy. We can actually do coaching where we have a very intense program for four to eight weeks where you meet with someone every week just to talk about practical things. We're going to offer you some very real suggestions. And then we're going to meet next week and we're going to say, how did it go? Did you implement that? And what was the outcome? Oh, it didn't work. Okay, well, then we'll just try something different or it's working. Let's keep going. You know, just very, very hands on 
practical information. In addition to that, we have support groups that we run through our PACC for both our foster care program and our um, adoption program. We have a support group that is running currently for adoptees from Columbia. That is one of our bigger programs, and we have a lot of kiddos that come home from Colombia who are older, who speak a lot of Spanish and not a lot of English. And so we have a Spanish-speaking person and another person who runs that group just for the adoptees so that they can talk about what they're experiencing and what challenges they're facing. It, that has been so successful. This is our I think our second year to do that support group and the kids really love it. And so we really would love to do that more as we grow and see like, how can we get more involved in other pro, you know, cause it really takes, you have to have a certain number of kiddos to have a support group. So, you know, figuring all of that out. Um, and it's virtual of course, cause our kids live all over the country and we, you know, those are just some of the, there's a lot of other things that we have, um, developed and created for the Post Adoption Connection Center. But the long-term goal for adult adoptees, obviously, is that they would also know that the Post Adoption Connection, Connection Center exists and that we're here down the road. But we obviously are communicating with the family. And then once they become an adult, we don't necessarily know if they know that we're there but hopefully if we continue to keep that information on our website. If they know what agency they were adopted through, they'll be able to find us. So based off of what I just heard, the, the support group, is there, is there intention on expanding that, expanding that to other, other places, other states? Because uh, I know that they, obviously this exists in more than one state. Um, it was originated in Oklahoma, but um, it's uh it's all over. So it does that mean that the programs are also looking to expand nationwide? Right. Well, um, Nightlight actually started in California. Oh. So the Oklahoma office, we only, the Oklahoma office started in 2015. Mm -hmm. It was a merger. Okay. And so then I relocated to Oklahoma because this is where I'm from. So I was in South Carolina and we merged that agency. Then I moved to Kentucky because we had a merger in Kentucky and then I came home to Oklahoma. So, um, but as far as the expansion of that, you know, it's really about, we would love to do that. It's more about funding than anything else. It's can't, you know, we have to pay the staff to do those services and, we've looked into like trying to find grants for post-adoption services. Like, is there anything that we can do to get funding to help support this so we can do more of it? And one of the things we've found is that there are very limited grants and very limited resources for post-adoption support, but the, what does exist is usually state-based. And because, you know, our post-adoption connection center is physically located in Austin. That's where our director is. We work with kiddos and families all across the country. So when we try to apply for grants, we don't get them because they only want to serve children in Texas. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, the number of children in Texas that we could actually serve is a very low number because our kiddos are in other states as well. So, Yes, that is a goal that we have, and we're trying to figure out how do we do it? Like, how do we grow this? How do we pay for it? 
long-term, it's just, you know, figuring that right. out. You know, I, every time you, you mention how, just how expanded the organization is, I almost like forget that you're also in this place and you're in this place and the organization is here. It, I know that there's a, a plethora of states where the organization is and keeping track. I'm just really happy that there's so many different options. I know all of those options are uh, listed on your website and where specifically the states are, which is great. So just almost to kind of wrap up the story, I have two more questions. What are some of the most frequently asked questions by parents about the process? And what is your advice for the adoptive parents, adoptees? Frequently asked questions. Most of the time, families, do you mean like when they're coming into the process or like after they've adopted? Let's, let's take it from somebody who's coming into the process, who's interested and doesn't necessarily know where to begin, has stumbled upon the site, and is making the phone call sort of thing to inquire. What are some frequently asked questions? Most families are interested in what does it cost okay. and how long does it mm, Okay. Interesting. So the, what happens with that is, you know, it varies right. depending on the program that you choose. So one of the things we, we, two things that we talk to families about most of the time, right from the get-go is there's funding. Nobody calls our office and says, oh, I have, you know, $35,000 and I'm just going to pay for my adoption. Right. Like that's just an example of maybe one of the international countries. And that's including travel and immigration and homes, all that stuff they have to pay for. Nobody's ever done that. So I, we, we encourage our families to realize that you may think you can't afford it, but everybody feels that way. Right. Don't think that there's all the only rich people can adopt. Mm-hmm. So we have um, another uh, service that we offer. We have a financial support person who any family that comes in who wants to talk about like, how can I apply for grants and, you know, no interest loans and things like that. We have a whole person who is identified to talk with families and help them with those applications. So we let families know that information right up front. The second thing that I mentioned is how long does it take? And so again, we, we want to shift families focus if we can. Now we obviously are, we do domestic and embryo adoption. So we are about babies, you know, if you really want a baby, but we're trying to, if you don't want to wait, then how about adopt a waiting child? Because there are already children who are waiting for a family and the adoption process for that child is going to be pretty quick because you don't have to wait for a birth mother to pick you. You don't have to wait for a family or I mean a country to have a very young child that they're going to send your way. You know, they already have a child that is waiting for a family. So you're going to skip through all of that wait. You're going to move right to the uh, home study and preparing for this specific child. And then your time frame is just based on whatever it takes that country or that program to get that child to you. And again, that varies. So we, we just have to tell them, you know, ranges, like if you, if you're picking this particular country, then it's going to be this amount of time potentially. Those are the biggest things that people ask. And then also, you know, helping families, like if a family comes to us and they say, well, we really would like to have a baby. And then as we talk to them, we find out that they have school-aged children 
Right. And those children are very active in sports and they're doing all this stuff as a family. And we're like, well, isn't a baby going to kind of cause a kink in that plan? <laughs> like, how are you going to manage a baby? What if the baby gets sick and you can't go to work? And, you know, then people are like, well, yeah, I guess, you know, a lot of times people choose some of the sometimes families who have other children choose baby because they think it will be easier. Right. You know, a baby has less trauma. A baby is easier for me to love. But the reality is that babies are not always easier. Right. And, and sometimes they're a lot harder, <laughs> depending on your lifestyle. So, you know, getting them to kind of shift. And so that's really a lot of, the, you know, what we talk to families about initially is let's let's talk about what your family makeup looks like and what is the best route for your family. And I forgot what your second question was. It was just going to be advice for anyone coming in, uh, for the parents, for the adoptees. I think I think you've really covered that. Again, something I really deeply appreciate about this particular organization is just how much hands-on, how much support you get from, it seems like, all of the staff. It's during this time when parents, future parents are kind of looking or deciding it can be a very scary thing. It's like you said, there's a lot of options. People may not know where to go. And uh, though to those listening who are potentially interested in either adopting or being part of the Snowflake program, it is definitely offered here. And you will have a lot of support uh, along the way from basically day one, the moment that you call in, which again, I also really like that because it's like you said, a lot of other organizations have an automated service. And that's uh, where I feel this organization really sets itself apart, not besides the overabundance of different types of uh, organizations and pathways really that you can take to reunify a family or to create a family or to um, just feel supported. And I am very grateful. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Chats with Cat. A very special thank you to our guest, Lisa. Stay tuned for another episode of Chats with Cat every other Wednesday on the Voice of Adoptee podcast. Always remember, someone somewhere is thinking of you. You are not alone. <laughs>